Welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to start by sharing some of the context for today's episode. Last month, that is February 2021, one of my colleagues and I noticed that the RFF Explainer on Carbon Capture and Sequestration, which provides an overview of the technology, along with its uses, its benefits, and its drawbacks, had suddenly skyrocketed in terms of page views on the website. I mean, skyrocketed. And when we did a little investigation as to what had prompted this sudden and expanded interest, we found Elon Musk's announcement from the day prior. Mr. Musk is offering $100 million in prize money, managed through the XPRIZE Foundation, to teams that can envision, prototype, and validate scalable carbon capture and removable technology. At the end of the four-year contest period, several prizes will be awarded. A $50 million first place prize, along with $20 million for second place, and $10 million for third. The awards program will also offer 25 six-figure scholarships to competing academic teams. And according to XPRIZE officials, the $100 million on offer represents one of the largest, if not the largest, incentive prizes in history. So, today's conversation is about prizes, how they've been used, what we can learn from past successes and failures, and how they compare to other instruments designed to spur innovation. And to talk about these fascinating issues, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Zarina Khan, Professor of Economics at Bowdoin College and a member of the National Bureau of Economic Research. Professor Khan's research examines issues in laws and economic history, including intellectual property rights, technological progress in Europe and the United States, antitrust, litigation and legal systems, and corporate governance. She's an award-winning author, and her newest book is Inventing Ideas, Patents, Prizes, and the Knowledge Economy. I'm very pleased she's joining me today on Resources Radio to share her insights, so please stay with us. Serena, thank you so much for coming on Resources Radio and for bearing with my long introduction to our episode. Um, It's very nice to talk with you today. Thank you, Kristen. I'm delighted to be here, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Great. So before we get to the meat of that conversation, uh, I'd love to know a little bit more about your background and your research interests. So how did you become interested in in innovation and and prizes and all of this conglomeration of issues uh, as a topic of your research? Well, I guess you can say that I've engaged in a sort of educational arbitrage. (laughs) I received a first-class honors degree in three years from England and an MA in economics from Canada in one year. So at that time I was around 22 and fascinated by a lot of different topics. But I was fortunate to get a fellowship to participate in a workshop that offered a certificate in technology policy. Now, this workshop was located in a gorgeous seaside resort near Montego Bay, Jamaica. And I have to admit that initially I viewed this as a sort of tropical vacation. But I quickly became completely captivated by the subject of technological innovation. And soon after that, I got a Fulbright scholarship to get my PhD in economics at UCLA. I approached Kenneth Sokoloff, who was a professor looking for a research assistant in the first week. And he told me that he had lots of existing projects, but he also had a sort of vague idea for, as he said, a risky project on patents. And I promptly said, I will take the risky project on patents. (laughs) So at that point, he went away on leave. And I worked for a year on the project pretty much on my own. 
Now, that particular project started an entirely new research area using empirical analysis to understand the economic history of incentives for innovation. So it was indeed high risk, but it has turned out to be very high return as well, because these sorts of very precise quantitative studies tell us a great deal about the reasons behind the success and failure of nations. Fantastic. Okay. So today's conversation, as I mentioned at the outset, is is about prizes and how they fit into this ecosystem of tools that are used to drive innovation. Can you share with us just a little bit of kind of the history of using prizes to drive innovation? And it could be in the energy arena or elsewhere. I imagine there are lessons from, from many different sectors. So lay the groundwork for us, if you would. I guess you could write a book on this question, and obviously I have. So prices of all sorts have been around for thousands of years. For instance, in ancient China, they used lotteries with prizes to fund projects and innovations. But today we see a big resurgence of interest in prizes and even the federal government proposes billions of dollars in prizes. But even when the government is analyzing these sorts of policies, they just tend to cite a few anecdotes about historical prizes. And one of the reasons why my book is called Inventing Ideas is that I point out a lot of this consists of false and misleading information. And so to counter this, I, I wrote this book. For instance, one of the sort of canonical prizes that's usually cited to support these kinds of policies is a prize that was offered in the 19th century. Now, billiard balls at the time were made from ivory tusks, you know, from elephants. And this ivory was becoming very expensive. So you had a lot of inventors who were trying to find an artificial substitute. So a company that made billiard balls offered a really large prize for artificial ivory in the middle of the 19th century. So as you mentioned, this is usually pointed out as a success story, but actually the prize was never paid out. The person who came up with the best solution was called John Hyatt. And he rejected the award because his invention had a much greater market value than the prize itself. So Hyatt instead patented his invention and started his own company and became extremely wealthy and successful. And I should point out that he got over 200 patents over his entire career. So what I saw was that there is a clear need for systematic empirical evidence about prizes and about other sorts of incentives for innovation. And sad to say, I have spent the past 10 years scouring archives from basements in London to concrete bunkers outside of Paris, and most exotic of all, San Francisco. So this data set I've put together consists of about 65,000 innovation prizes. And it covers all kinds of awards, from inducement awards to exposed recognitions, such as medals and honorary prizes, and cash prizes. So when I put this together with the data on over 100,000 people who made inventions and patented them, all of this together allows me to draw very general conclusions about the efficacy of prize systems. So what I'd like to point out is that prizes tend to be a function of large inequality. 
enterprises of all sorts were very popular in elitist societies like Britain and France. You know, I think that elites have always mistrusted markets, that wealth and influence tend to lead to the conviction that the insights of a favored few can outperform the common masses in the market. I mean, you can see today that there are a lot of people who think that status and celebrity are a good substitute for specialized knowledge. But the French in particular used prizes as an integral part of their entire national science and technology policy. Now, if we contrast that with the US, it's very different. So if you look at the debates in the US at the time of the Constitution, well, I'm a big fan of Alexander Hamilton, but I think he got it wrong in this case because he lobbied for a national system of prizes like they had in Europe. But in the US, these sorts of proposals were rejected because people felt they were elitist special measures that would just benefit special interests rather than all of society. So instead of this sort of elitist prize system to promote innovation, the US was unique in creating the world's first modern patent system and in promoting decentralized markets and ideas. And these sorts of market-oriented patent policies led to what my first book called a democratization of invention. And it was this that fueled the rise of the US as a global industrial power. Hmm. Fascinating. Um, do you see prizes and patents as complements to each other? It sounds like both systems have coexisted. Well, at a certain point, they started to coexist, I guess I should say. And how do you look at them now? Are they tools that work together or are they really substitutes for each other in, in, your, in your view? Well, this is a really important question that illustrates why historical evidence is especially valuable. Today, of course, everywhere you look in all countries, you have patent systems. So this means that if prizes are offered, they're necessarily going to be complementary to patent awards. And it would be quite difficult, if not impossible, to disentangle the independent effect of prizes. So to analyze this question, I used data from the Royal Society of Arts in London. I'll call that the RSA. So the RSA was a very elitist society that was founded in the 18th century, and it actually just exists today. It's just around the corner from the London School of Economics. So uh, when I was on sabbatical at the London School of Economics, I would pop over to the RSA archives and go through all of their records because they were very enthusiastic about innovation prizes. At the same time, they were initially extremely hostile to patents. So you can see that uh, this is going to be a very interesting uh, data set for analyzing when patents and prizes are substitutes because they ruled that anyone who received a prize was not allowed to get a patent. So the data provide a very clean way of identifying the independent effect of prize systems. And what my analysis shows is that you have a selection effect. What this means is that inventors who had ideas that were valuable in the marketplace would bypass the prize system and pursue returns from commercialization. But people with lemons or sort of rubbish inventions <laughs> would apply for awards from the RSA. So as a result, the RSA prize system was quite irrelevant and contributed nothing to technological progress. 
Now, eventually, even the RSA acknowledged their prize system was a complete failure. And then they switched to supporting patents and even promoting the patent system. So the moral is that when prizes and patents are substitutes, the prize system will end up with lemons. So what about complements? That is when inventors can get both patents and prizes. Well, in this case, we get another distortion because inventors will be overcompensated through what I call award stacking. So the inventor is going to get a prize and they're going to get a reward in the market. And the incentive is for them to spend too much time chasing after additional handouts rather than trying to invest in improvements to meet market demand and obtain returns by satisfying consumers. So I know that this is probably more information than you wanted, Kristen, but it, <laughs> it, it kind of helps to explain my personal conviction that, you know, of course, private parties can do whatever they want, but governments should never use prize awards, either as complements or as substitutes. I mean, after all, government should be in the business of promoting overall social welfare. Hmm. This is really fascinating. And obviously, you've brought in a lot of historical evidence, and it's really nice to have these historical perspectives here on Resources Radio. But you are indeed a professor of economics. And so are there other insights? You've sort of hinted at this, but are there other insights that the economics profession can offer us about the value of prizes? Have you ever taken an econ class? Uh, it's been a long time. <laughs> well, let me apologize up front for any unpleasant flashbacks to <laughs> okay. your, your principles of macroeconomics classes. So I, I think that uh, there is obviously a lot that economics can say about prizes, but I, I just want to focus on three points. And the first is the distinction between uh, monopoly and a monopsony. So okay. <laughs> you're, you're going to be tested at the end of this. Of I, I can't wait. I'm taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> so a monopoly is a situation where you have a single seller in the market. And a monopsony is when you have a single buyer. So prize awards are actually monopsonies, where you know the person who's offering the prize is the only person that is the buyer. And all of the people competing for the prize are the sellers. Now, economic analysis shows that monopsonies can involve very large economic costs. But what my research shows is that monopsonies also can lead to very large social costs, including sort of arbitrary and idiosyncratic outcomes, unjust discrimination, and even corruption. You know, suppose that the best invention for carbon capture lowers the market value of Tesla by 50% then you can be pretty certain that that innovation is not going to get the prize. So the point here is that patents are different because they're very market-oriented incentives. If an invention is valuable, the patentee is going to be rewarded by profits in the market. But if the invention is useless, they're going to get nothing. And society also benefits because the patentee discloses all of the information to the public. But what I point out is that prize awards belong to what I call administered innovation systems. And these are top-down arrangements where economic decisions about rewards and values and the allocation of resources are going to be made by panels and by judges who will never have as much information as the market. 
And usually these sorts of prize awards are very secretive. You know, they don't tell you how and why they arrived at their decision. And certainly they never put in place any mechanism to reveal information to everyone in the, you know, in the field. So I think that administered systems analytically are a lot like command economies because it's impossible for administrators to come up with the correct value. You know, you have too low a price and that's a problem. You have too high a price and that also creates distortions and misallocates resources. You know, suppose that you were to offer 200 million for a superior mousetrap. Well, your prize is surely gonna attract a posse of people to try to fix your rodent problem. But at the same time, this disproportionate payment is going to have unforeseen consequences like inducing oncologists to switch from finding cures for cancer to competing for your mousetrap payout. And of course, there is no guarantee that the invention you select is actually going to be successful in the general marketplace. So I would conclude by pointing out that this misallocation of resources was very evident in the case of the Google Lunar X Prize. And this was a moonshot prize of 30 million. So for 10 years, this competition went on and Google got 10 years of free publicity and inside information from the competitors for the prize. Then Google canceled the award. So nobody actually got the 30 million. So my take on this is that prize awards are great for the monopsonist who offers the award. Markets are generally better for the rest of us. In the prize system, one person wins a prize. In the market, everyone can get a prize. Interesting. So this is really fascinating. And uh, it sounds like you have a fair amount of skepticism, I think it's fair to say, <laughs> about the value prizes. Um, I thought I was being nuanced. <laughs> oh, you are. You are. I don't mean to imply that you're being unbalanced, but certainly it sounds like you do approach this with, you know, a, a, a critical eye. And so I guess I did want to ask, can you point to any cases historically that really have illustrated successful use of prizes to promote innovation? And and if there, you know, if there are some that really stick out to you, what, what factors have led to that success? I can think of things like the scale of the prize and how well, for example, that matches with the scale of the problem. You mentioned that those are often sort of off kilter. Maybe it was visibility, maybe even the glamour of it led to some extra success. But but I'm, I'm curious if there are examples you point to as sort of real successes. Well, you know, economists aren't very popular. <laughs> <laughs> and it's generally because we think there are trade-offs to everything. At least that's the story we try to tell ourselves to justify our lack of popularity. <laughs> so as you point out, grand innovation prizes certainly have scale and visibility and glamour. So the Breakthrough Foundation, for instance, gives out millions of dollars at glitzy ceremonies that allegedly treat scientists like rock stars. <laughs> well, there is glamour, at least for the person who offers the award. And yes, there is glamour for the winner, but maybe not so much for all the losers who generally can't fit on the red carpet. So part of this uh, answer about nuance uh, can be illustrated by, say, a prize that was offered by Netflix. And I'm not using this example because Reed Hastings was a Bowdoin graduate. <laughs> okay, right. No conflict of interest. <laughs> Got it. Okay. 
So a few years ago, Netflix offered a prize of $1 million to improve its algorithm, you know, to sort of predict the choices of, of videos. And I think this was successful in many dimensions. It was successful for Netflix because they got more than $1 million of advertising and attention. And after a couple of years, they awarded the prize to the winner. This was a group that was called Belcor's Pragmatic Chaos. They initially wanted to call themselves Resistance is Futile, but uh, they decided that that might be too aggressive. So now the sort of economic caveats start. So by the end of this competition, circumstances in the market had changed. So this coding innovation was no longer relevant to Netflix's operations. So the invention itself was not, it was redundant. But the prize attracted around 20,000 teams of hopeful competitors. So maybe 40, 50,000 people. And uh, what I find is that in almost all price competitions, the investments of time and resources on the part of the competitors generally exceed even the absolute value of the award. And, uh, you know, it's not irrelevant that the runner-up submitted their entry just a few minutes after the winner. But actually, I think this whole idea of a grand innovation is itself nonsensical. Because workable, usable discoveries that ultimately benefit consumers have very little to do with visibility and glamour. So my own, I don't know, what's your idea of a great invention? What would you say? A great invention? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to pick... What am I going to pick? I'm going to pick the airplane. Okay. The airplane doesn't exist as an invention because it consists of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of tiny incremental inventions that are all sort of buckled together to form the airplane. So my idea of a great invention is the paperclip. Hmm, okay. And I'm not referring to that annoying paperclip assistant in Microsoft Office. He was a great invention, too, I have to say. Uh, no, I really no, miss no. him, but okay, fair enough. The tangible paperclip, yes. I, I would pay money not to have that paperclip assistant. <laughs> I'll offer a prize for whoever can permanently get rid of that. <laughs> so paperclips don't have much technical value, but they have enormous market value in terms of boosting productivity and benefiting all of us. So if we think about this ex ante, I very much doubt that any prize-giving authority would have come up with the idea of the paperclip or that they would estimate the correct value in the millions of dollars. So in my view, the most successful prizes are actually non-monetary. So for instance, when I completed 20 years as a Bowdoin professor, the college gave me an award. It was a check for $120. And I have to confess, I was pretty outraged by this. By the way, don't tell the president of the college. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't that it was cash. I mean, obviously, if I received a check for $1.2 million, my outrage would have vanished completely. But in the absence of the $1.2 million, I would have been happier with an award without any intrinsic value. So what my research shows is that when they're given a choice between cash and 
medal or some sort of non-monetary award, firms typically opt for the medal because these sorts of non-cash awards enhance reputation and they serve as a signal of quality in the marketplace. So in that circumstance, any financial payoff is just a windfall. And what's interesting is, you know, I mentioned the Lunar X Prize, which was uh, abandoned. Well, it was recently resuscitated, but as a non-cash award. Hmm. Interesting. And do you think it will, is it sort of early enough stages that we can't quite know at this point whether it will be awarded? Or do you anticipate this time it would have a different outcome? I think that in this circumstance, we have a case of complementarity where the participants are going to get rewards in the marketplace. So to some extent, whether they get the prize or not is irrelevant. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, I want to I wanna eventually pull this all back to the initial, the initial prize that framed all this. But before I do that, I, I wanted to ask just one more question, sort of keying into something you said briefly earlier in our conversation. And I think you, you mentioned something about um, prizes leading to injustice. And you had, you had referenced how they were sort of considered to be tools of elite sections of the population. And um, so does your research tell us anything about the relationship between innovation and diversity or inclusion? Well, today, a lot of people don't realize how exceptional the American experience has been. And it's not hyperbole to say that the American economy has been the most successful in all of human history. And the question is, how did we get to this point? How did the US overtake leading countries like Britain and France? And I put it down largely to this relationship between diversity and innovation. You know, as I mentioned in Europe, innovation policies were the opposite of inclusive. Administered innovation systems were run by elites for elites. They felt that only privileged people with wealth or status were capable of recognizing and making valuable contributions. And my data show that rewards were based primarily on the identities of inventors rather than the productivity of their discoveries. The American model was completely different. It was based on the principle that diversity of ideas mattered most. And there was a sense that creativity was a universal human attribute. So it's impossible ex ante to know where valuable ideas are gonna come from. American technology policies were therefore designed to ensure open access for everyone. So everyone, as Hamilton would say, would get their shot, <laughs> regardless of their background. My research focuses a lot on the relationship between gender and innovation and it's very interesting to look at the very first patent statute that was passed in the US in 1790. And that statute said, and I quote, patents would be granted to any inventor if he, she, or they had invented any useful discovery. Interesting. Now, obviously at the time, there are all sorts of barriers in society at large against women and minorities and different groups. So it's all the more striking that we don't see this in the realm of patent and innovation policies. Certainly in the US, when you look at prize systems such as those offered by the Franklin Institute, you had best administrators of prizes who didn't give out awards to women and minorities. But these relatively disadvantaged groups could be 
and did become successful in the marketplace through the patent system. And I'm currently writing a book called Women in the Republic of Enterprise that sort of elaborates on this. But overall, what these patent records show is you have a remarkable range of relatively ordinary people, you know, even economists, <laughs> trying to benefit from their creativity. And it was this tsunami of supposedly small incremental inventions that transformed not just the United States, but the entire global economy. So if you want a pithy concluding statement, it would be that U.S. economic success was due more to patents for paperclips than prizes for starships. Hmm. Okay. All right. I definitely want to close with our regular feature, but given all that you've researched and all that you've told us about today, Elon Musk's effort, is it the whim of a wealthy and admittedly concerned citizen? Um, or is it really a critical piece of the innovation puzzle that's aiming to tackle this, you know, very significant societal problem of, of climate change? I think I'm going to address the second part of your question first and look at the issue of climate change. Really, the central problem in this area is not ignorance of ways to resolve carbon emissions. The real problem isn't that people need to have their attention drawn to this. The real problem is that we have an absence of markets and incorrect prices. That's P-R-I-C-E-S. So we don't need grand innovation prizes. Instead, what we need to do is the tedious job of setting up mechanisms to ensure that they're correct market prices, P-R-I-C-E-S, for emissions. And how to do that is not a mystery. You know, Bowdoin has a very strong environmental uh, program and uh, economists in that program have long proposed policies that create incentives for lower emissions, such as carbon taxes, futures markets in carbon offset credits. In my view, the best policy would be to auction off carbon rights to firms and facilitate markets for trading in emissions. And actually, I don't know whether you saw this, but a few days ago, even the American Petroleum Institute is on board with carbon markets. It's kind of ironic that today the European Union is well ahead of the US in terms of promoting markets in carbon emissions. So going back to the question of innovation, all of my research shows that inventive activity responds to market demand. Once we have markets like these in place, any necessary technological innovations will, I have no doubt, be found. Now, as for Elon Musk, <laughs> <laughs> he certainly attracted a lot of media attention to the problem of excessive carbon emissions. But I think he could have done this far more cheaply by turning cartwheels all the way from Mountain View to Palo Alto. <laughs> Are you familiar with Punch? It's a London newspaper, a sort of satirical London newspaper. And in 1906, Punch made view, they considered pretentious awards like these moonshot prizes. So this was in 1906. And the paper proposed a large prize to the first astronaut to make a round trip to Mars within a week, stipulating that the winner of the award would have to bring back, and I quote, some tangible evidence, such as the prospectus of a Martian book club, supposing them to have any enterprise. And they added, a live Martian would of course be best. 
So I'm quite confident that the X prizes will benefit Elon Musk more than it will the planet. But I would guess they're still likely to be more useful to the rest of us than his plans for the colonization of Mars. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, these are all issues to watch, definitely. And I really appreciate your perspective on uh, these issues that I think are very relevant to the conversations happening within, certainly within the environmental economics field right now, and in many, many policy discussions as well. And just having this wonderful historical context combined with the economic insights is is great. So thank you. Um, so we'll close with our regular feature, Top of the Stack. And I wanted to ask you uh, to, if you wanted to recommend some more good content. Of course, books are always welcome, articles, other podcasts. And so let me ask you, Zarina, what's on the top of your stack? You know, I really like the physical verticality of your phrase, Top of the Stack, especially when used in the context of a digital podcast. Well, I recently read an article published in Nature by a whole team of researchers, and it has a rather stodgy title, Unlocking History Through Automated Virtual Unfolding of Sealed Documents Imaged by X-Ray. But actually, this is a really captivating article. Basically, ever since the olden times, senders of messages have tried to find ways to encrypt and protect their secrets. So when the cost of paper and postage was very expensive, one of the ways in which you could do this was to intricately fold your letters so nobody could covertly read the contents. And this article was describing a computer process to virtually unseal the documents without actually opening them. So this article resonated with me for many reasons, and I'll just mention one. I spent an entire summer in an attic in Paris where records of a prize-granting institution were kept. So I was surrounded by stacks of files on inventors who'd applied for awards. And uh, some of these files about the French inventors were like a foot high, all covered in thick dust. Now, on many occasions, I would come across envelopes with red wax seals that had never been broken. And I had permission to open them. And it was very poignant to read these handwritten pages from all sorts of French inventors. You know, they would include drawings and samples of their discoveries. And a lot of these applicants said they were in a desperate situation. They were pleading for support from the prize granting committee. But just think about it. Some administrator had just put the letter in his file, unopened, and tossed it aside. And I was the only person in 200 years who'd ever set eyes on the contents. So these sealed letters really provided to me a very moving reminder of how arbitrary prize systems are. And they confirmed the conclusions of this extensive empirical analysis using, you know, over 160,000 uh, data points on individuals. My conclusion was and is that the best incentive for productive change is failure in the market. And the best prize is success in the market. Well, great. Thank you again for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. It was my pleasure. You've been listening to Resources Radio. 
Learn how to support Resources for the Future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.